0: In an amazing turn of events, Cuyahoga County Board of Elections was not prepared this morning for people to vote. Their scanners for their voter books weren't working, and so there were people who were turned away, dozens and dozens in some places, and long delays elsewhere. We're told by now, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, they got it fixed, but amazing with a former president trying to overthrow the government with claims of bad voting practices that Cuyahoga County could get it so wrong, I'm hearing from people that are wondering whether the votes that they cast this morning will be counted Check out our follow-up stories later on Cleveland.com. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, and Laura Johnston. It is finally primary day, and everywhere but Cuyahoga County, it sounds like it's working okay. Uh, Hopefully, Cuyahoga County has it in gear. Let's begin. Do we know more about why Sheriff Villand quit? abruptly over the weekend. And do we know more about what the ramifications will be? Layla, Caitlin Durbin put together a pretty deeply reported story that seems to be moving the needle pretty far over to the idea of let's dump this charter, rewrite it, and elect our Yeah, We
1: still don't know. We don't have much more clarity about the motivation behind Villain's abrupt resignation last week, but Caitlin did speak with some folks throughout the county structure yesterday who noted that his departure and and really the revolving door of the sheriff's office might be a sign that we should really consider at least a return to an elective sheriff's position. Since, since we moved to this new form of county government, Villand is our fifth sheriff, only taking the job a little more than a year ago. And the next sheriff would be the sixth we've had in 11 years. And County Councilman Michael Gallagher said yesterday, that's just embarrassing. They've, they've got to understand what's wrong with that office and address it <laughs> before we just keep plowing through uh, candidates for this job. So, so one theory is that Villand um, still felt like he didn't have enough autonomy as sheriff. Even after a charter amendment was was passed in November 2019 that was intended to grant the sheriff greater independence from the county executive. You know, at his confirmation hearing, Villand said he was really unclear about the level of autonomy that he had from Budish, And that remained unresolved for him well into his job. Council President Purnell Jones promised to work with Villand on a new wording for the county code to, to kind of further ensure his independence but on, on Monday, Jones told Caitlin that 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 never really occurred. and, and he said villain indicated to him a few months into the job that everything was fine, so they didn't really pursue that any further. But he Jones is now really kind of dismayed that villain resigned without them ever really ironing that out. And <clears throat> so county, pardon me, County Prosecutor Michael Malley is one of those who's suggesting, you know, we should really consider the return of an elected sheriff. Maybe this isn't working for us, having the sheriff who's beholden to the county executive. It's just an unstable situation.
0: All right. But, but there is a flaw in this thinking, right? Because what they're basically saying is the county executive is a bozo who can't appoint a sheriff. But we elect the county executive. So we elected the bozo. And the county council, the people that want to create $66 million in slush funds, we elect all them, too. What is the philosophy that with the sheriff, we'll actually get it right? The voters are getting it wrong with the people we're putting in. The executive's no good. He's completely incompetent, as we've demonstrated on this podcast repeatedly. The county council is not doing its job, being the, the checks and balance. Once on the executive and now is trying to feather its nest with these six million dollar individual slush funds. Why would anybody think we would elect the qualified sheriff?
1: Uh, I don't know, right I mean <laughs> we haven't elected qualified anybody, but if you don't elect I mean I guess it's kind of like a domino thing if you don't elect the qu- a quality executive, then everybody you know even if you have a quality sheriff, that quality sheriff is not going to be able to act, independently well because that person is beholden to a poor county executive right but it's the
0: same thing in the city of cleveland if you elected a bozo for mayor the police chief answers to the mayor and so it it, i I just i'm not i'm not sure if you untether
1: if you untether the sheriff and let the sheriff act independently then then you don't have you don't have that sheriff uh you know being hamstrung by a crappy county executive
0: but we had a bad sheriff for years and so we we didn't the voters did not show any ability to pick a good sheriff back when we elected the sheriff i'm just raising the question bruce akers seemed to say the same thing at the bottom of the story it's like you know you don't change the system you you change the people in the system Uh, Because we have Democratic one-party rule in Cuyahoga County, the party keeps putting up candidates that are not good. (laughs) It's all—I mean, come on, think about it. The voters are furious about— the county council wanting to flush forty-six million dollars down the drain in another medical mart investment—they're really unhappy with the slush funds, but they keep electing them. Marty Sweeney is unopposed on on his in his seeking reelection. The guy that created the whole slush fund idea.
1: So I'm I'm just not seeing how does electing a sheriff. Fix I, this. I'm sorry to say though that I don't think there's a structure that's going to fix this problem. It's a people problem, not a structural problem. I mean, you you can change the structure. You're going to end up with the same people. You can you can go back to commissioners. One of them is going to be Marty Sweeney.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I would argue that we'd at least have three slush funds instead of you know whatever. (laughs) You're right.
2: (laughs) Okay, but three slush funds with a lot more money in them. I mean, maybe
0: not. Maybe not. I don't know. It's it's an interesting argument. It's an interesting argument to say that because the county executive completely fails in his selecting and provisioning a sheriff, that we should change it. Because we're not electing quality people in Cuyahoga County for the most part. Anyway, interesting story. Check it out on Cleveland.com. It is today in Ohio. How did Ohio Senator Rob Portman try to turn Washington, D.C. upside down, according to a new book of insider information involving the 2020 election and beyond? Lisa, this was a revealing anecdote.
3: It certainly was. And after yesterday, when we were talking about his vanilla demeanor, this is kind of not that. The book is called This Will Not Pass." It was just released. It's written by New York Times reporters Alex Burns and Jonathan Martin. And they did. They talked about the 2020 presid- presidential campaign, the 1-6 insurrection, and the headwinds of Biden's policy uh, efforts, and so on. But in this book, they talked about Rob Portman meeting Senator Joe Manchin, the dino, or the Democrat name only of West Virginia, in a Capitol Hill restaurant back in February 1st of 2021. Along on the for the ride was Susan Collins of Maine and John Thune of South Dakota. The three of them entreated, practically begged Manchin to leave the Democratic Party, and they offered a Senate committee chair and fundraising help. If he did so, Manchin did decline. And as you know, if he had defected to the Republican Party, it would have completely changed the balance. Balance of Congress, and also uh, let, let's stop there and discuss.
0: Well, he he didn't want Mitch McConnell as the as the leader of the Senate, which I thought was interesting because lots of people would rather never see him in that seat again. It actually the leak last night to Politico of the draft of the Supreme Court opinion on abortion, where the Samuel Lido has written it. They're going not only to overturn Roe v. Wade, but use use an argument that will probably lead to the overturning of lots of other precedents, like gay marriage and and rules on contraception. I wonder how this this meeting now will have much more meaning in relation to that. There's a real thought in Congress that they need to move to do something. This is a runaway Supreme Court jumping so far against precedent that we've never seen anything like it. Again, it's a draft opinion. It could change before it comes out, but all of a sudden— Manchin being a Democrat is much more critical to the Democratic Party.
3: Yeah, it certainly is. We have razor thin margins here. And, you know, he's held up other he and uh, who is the other one? Uh, The woman. I can't think of her name. But anyway, uh, uh, they kept holding up, you know, Democratic, you know, uh, policy and legislation You know, they didn't vote with the party on many times. So, yeah, that's and him moving to be a Republican, it would have been game over.
0: Well, this opinion is going to stir some movement in Congress and Manchin is going to be the key because there there's going to be an argument, dump the filibuster and pass a law that nationally legalizes abortion. Because th- what's coming is, is not just abortion; it's mm-hmm. everything could yeah. go out the window here. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the conservatives in the Supreme Court look like they're ready to abandon the long-standing respect of Supreme Court precedent and just overturn everything they've disagreed with for a decade. So fascinating that Portman didn't wasn't successful. Uh, probably very healthy for the Democratic Party. Interesting anecdote in the book. It's today in Ohio. How bad is Jimmy DeMora's health as he gets closer to being resentenced for his notoriously corrupt ways? Laura, there's always claims by people that are seeking to be resentenced that their health is failing. We see it all the time. Frank Russo made the claim. Turned out his health was actually failing, and he died a couple years after he was released. Jimmy DeMora was the kingpin of the 2008 corruption case that took down 60 some people sent all sorts of people to prison he's serving a 28 year sentence it's going to get reduced why does his lawyer say he should be let out right away
2: Because he's in incredibly bad health for the the 67-year-old, he suffers from a heart defect, an intestinal disorder, an inner ear equilibrium disease. He needs knee replacement surgery. He suffered a stroke in prison. He's diabetic, uses a wheelchair, and contracted COVID-19 twice in prison, including once in which he became very ill. Because that long list of of symptoms or diseases, I just. Named, I mean, then you've got a lot of immune issues, and so he's going to be sentenced again next month in front of Judge Sarah Leoy, who's rethinking a couple of um, the charges after the definition has changed. It, basically, the, the Leoi and March overturned two convictions that focused on a contractor because they weren't official acts. So the uh, Demora's judge, or sorry, Demora's attorney, is really hoping he gets out.
0: Yeah, a lot of those illnesses are ones you can exaggerate. Like You can have many different degrees of a stroke, You know, some that are very minor, some that are major, and we don't get an indication of that. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem, though. He has never been repentant, and that matters to this judge. He's never said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have did what I did. To this day, he said, I did nothing wrong. And I'm betting that works against him on getting out immediately. His sentence will get reduced. It has to because of the, the rulings. But I bet he stays in for another five years that he might not have stayed in if he said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done what I did.
2: I, I think that is huge, right? I mean, although repentance at this point, I mean, what is is—if Have you been in jail for this long and it's been so awful and you can say anything to please let me out of this place? So- but, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. There's been no apology. It's been like, this is the way we did business. And so the hearing is going to be June 8th. The attorneys, the prosecutors, will have their own chance to put forward uh, arguments of why DeMora should stay in jail. But his attorney saying that compared to other similar crimes, he believes that DeMora should have gotten 12 to 15 years. And at this point, I mean, we're close to 12.
0: It would be so easy for him to say, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of amazing that with all the damage he did to this county, and it is demonstrated with a mountain of evidence, all I need to do is say, okay, okay, I've had plenty of years to think about what I did. I wish I hadn't have done it. I'm sorry to the people of Cuyahoga County. And I bet she'd say, okay, you're you're free to go. But we'll see. We'll know soon. She may let him out anyway. Uh, I'm just betting not. It's Today in Ohio. Reporter Bob Higgs profiled Ohio Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor over the weekend. We talked a little bit about this yesterday, but it deserves more of a discussion. Layla, what stands out about the state's most powerful lawyer as she heads toward retirement in December? And the story reminded me, she's a Cleveland State Law School grad, which is really cool that she's the highest lawyer in yeah. the land. Yeah,
1: well, you know, yeah, she's homegrown. She's a Northeast Ohio native. She graduated, as you said, from Cleveland Marshall College of Law, so that's a certainly... Uh, That's a point of pride for us. But also what stands out, I think, is for me, I I always have this presumption when I meet when I meet women who are at the very top of their field. I have a presumption that they got there through this really careful planning and lifelong ambition and striving toward that dream or or perhaps you'd expect that she comes from this long line of legal scholars or that she had some moment that inspired her course, but actually in O'Connor's case, she kind of stumbled into her path. She went to Seton Hill College, which is a Catholic university in Pennsylvania, but law school was really far from her mind at the time. In fact, she started out in pursuit of a pre-med major, and then that didn't really pan out. And so she considered studying education in graduate school, but realized that teaching wasn't the right career choice for her either. And she jokes that Thousands of students have benefited from that decision, which I think is a really funny joke. But um, from there, she has led this really trailblazing career. So once she found the path, she was on it. She was just, you know, the second woman to hold the office of lieutenant governor. She became the sixth woman to sit on the Ohio Supreme Court in 2010. She was the first woman in Ohio's history elected chief justice. So certainly she has found her calling. Um, central to her career has been her commitment to the rule of law. She prides herself on remaining apolitical and dispassionate in her decision making. And and that's where we find her now at the heart of this this epic gerrymandering dispute.
0: All right. Before anybody sends in an email, I wanna say Seton Hall is in nine native New Jersey, not Pennsylvania. We know, oh, we got it, we corrected sorry. it. Sorry. No need for emails. <laughs> Yeah, I, I still I talked about this yesterday where, where we asked her, and, and we talked you and I both talked to Bob before he did the interview. You, you know, let's let's probe to see what gets under her skin because she's she comes across as this dispassionate, very, very steady hand, very firm, no nonsense, expects you to respect the court. But so and she wasn't gonna talk about the gerrymandering case because she can't and she really respects the rules mm-hmm. of the court. But what gets under her skin? What there has to be stuff we all have it right, and all she said was, "Yeah, I leave my passions at the door." And it's like, "No, I'm not buying it." You have to have things that get under your skin and how you deal with it. I would love to have another crack. That's true, at that but you question. know what else?
1: Though she was pretty frank with Bob about what she sees as att- attempts to intimidate her during this very politically charged moment, and and you know the letters that she receives from folks telling her that she doesn't vote Republican enough. You know, she said that's an attempt to intimidate the judiciary and an attempt to erode the confidence of the judiciary. And it's quite clear from Bob's interview with her and from her former colleagues and others who know her, she won't be pressured or intimidated. She's as steadfast and as committed as they come. But it's it's obvious that gets under her skin, you know, those sorts of things.
0: Yeah. And actually, with our editorial board, she, she has pushed back on the idea that judicial races are partisan. She did not want to have the parties listed next to judges because she says party doesn't matter, the rule of law matters. We've rejected that because party does matter. Just look at the gerrymandering case the way that's broken down. And I think it's to her great dismay that her fellow justices don't operate the way she does, that they don't look at the cases with a jaundiced eye and follow the law I mean some of the the the, the Sharon Kennedy dissents in the gerrymandering case could not be more mm-hmm. partisan and that's got to break her heart as she heads toward mm-hmm. retirement
1: mm-hmm. yeah Any,
0: yeah it's a it's a good piece and and you know you pointed out in the heat of all of this stuff with gerrymandering we got the interview that's with right I Justice. think
1: that's so special who else can say that we have sp- spoken to, uh, you know the person who is at the absolute crux of it. She is really in the in the crucible, and we got to talk to her. It's uh, it, I think it's really special to hear her voice in the middle we've, of it. We've
0: been fortunate in Ohio. We've had a couple in a row of really good chief justices. I fear that record will end next year. It's today in Ohio. Today is primary voting day in Ohio, and as we discussed at the top of the podcast, Cuyahoga County botched the first couple of hours of it. We've been discussing primary day for months. How many more Ohioans are old enough to vote than a decade ago And what are the most hotly contested races today, Lisa? Let's remind people. Yes. um,
3: Actually, 1.8% more Ohioans are eligible to vote having turned 18 or will turn 18 by the November election. This is based on census data comparing 2010 to 2020. So overall, in the greater Cleveland area, there are 2.2 million eligible voters, and that's like a quarter of the Ohio population. Uh, The county that saw the biggest increase in eligible voters from 2010 to 2020 was Franklin County. They have 1 million eligible voters. That's a 15.5% increase. Uh, Not all counties saw an increase in eligible voters. The 11 Ohio counties with the smallest populations all saw a decrease. But we overall have more eligible voters for today's primary, and I certainly hope that first-time voters will get out there and exercise their right to vote. There are lots of races to consider. The big kahuna for everybody, of course, is the U.S. Senate race. On the Democratic side, Tim Ryan probably will win. He's up against Morgan Harper and Tracy T.J. Johnson. On the Republican ticket, thank God the election's today because those ads will finally end after today. <laughs> They've been horrible. Uh, Matt Dolan, we've got Jane Timkin, Josh Mandel, Mike Gibbons, and J.D. Vance. And I will say I've noticed because I watch local news and so I see all these ads, is that I've seen very few ads from Gibbons' Gibbons and Timken in the final days but uh, uh, Matt Dolan and Josh Mandel have definitely ramped up their ads in the last few days also the 11th Congressional District I'm now in that district I used to be in Dave Joyce's district now I'm in the 11th that's Chantel Brown the incumbent versus Nina Turner on the Democratic ballot and on the GOP side we have Eric Brewer and James Hempel. and then of course there's the governor's race Uh, Mike DeWine is looking pretty comfortable but he does have a challenge and Jim Renacci. There are two others on the Republican ticket, Joe Blystone and Ron Hood, but they're pretty much all Sarans and may split the pro-Trump vote, some are saying. On the Democratic ticket, we have Nan Whaley, the Dayton mayor, and John Cranley, the Cincinnati mayor.
0: Yeah, that's the one. I have no idea who's going to win, but that'll be a big race heading into November. I think Mike DeWine has some competition for his reelection. So get out and vote. We're told in Cuyahoga County, you now can. It's today in Ohio. Today, we'll decide an issue that has pitted Cleveland Heights residents against each other about a planned development in the Cedar Lee Commercial District. Laura, I did not assign this story. This <laughs> popped up on the radar. It's about five blocks from my house, so I didn't feel like I should put in the heavy hand. But Steve Litt wrote a, a decent piece about it. it. This is another one of those quintessential Cleveland Heights arguments, mostly polite, mostly based on substance. What are the details?
2: Yeah, this is a, a big issue in Cleveland Heights, and I'd love to get your perspective on whether you think it'll pass tonight. But uh, the ballot item asked voters whether they wish to approve an ordinance requiring the city to create a public activity park on the 1.07 acres of city owned land at the corner of Lee Road, Tullamore Road, and Meadowbrook Boulevard, which seems like a very straightforward question. So, a yes would be a vote for this park, but what it would do is disrupt um, a development that's been in the works for a long time in Cleveland Heights that's already gotten all of the approvals that's needed and has a signed contract with the city for a $50 million mixed use development It's designed to rejuvenate the retail district. A big part of it is not on that piece of land, but some of it is with apartments and they would still create about a half acre park in the same spot. But this ballot issue would would mean that they'd have to create a whole acre. Now, whether it's legal or not, because the contract's already signed, I think there's going to be a messy court battle if this passes.
0: Yeah, this one for me is just kind of Looney Tunes. This is a tiny piece of land, Mm -hmm. so you're not going to have much of a park there this development would put 700 extra people into the Cedar Lee District, which would make that district thrive. Coffee shops and restaurants, to have that many people, the critical mass. And and it has been in the works. It feels like the whole time I've lived here. They tore down an old bank building there so many years ago, I can't remember what it looked like. Mm-hmm. I, I, this And this park idea, I, you started seeing signs like a year and a half ago about you know, support the park. And I'm thinking, what park are you talking about? There is no plan for a park. Right. And the city has invested a huge amount of time and effort to do something to really rejuvenate this. Steve Litt had the same opinion. This is crazy talk. Of course you should vote no on this. And have the development come; it would be very healthy for this district. It'll make parking <laughs> a nightmare. Well, but the the but.
2: parking there is a parking garage there, and it's considered underused. And I've parked in that parking garage. I didn't use. I lived not too far from there at one point. And the idea is this would create more, you know, fill in some of the gaps that exist there. That vacant that vacant land that the city owns has been vacant for sixteen years, and make it a more walkable community. So yeah, I mean, it would make. But I love that the parking argument, like not having parking is actually a good problem because it means that your people want to come to your town and all the businesses on Lee Road want this to happen because they want more people to come into their shops.
0: Right. It'll it'll guarantee that that district thrives. And and that, I think, is the crux. The problem is, is if you go to the polls and you don't know any of this you're going to say, oh, of course I vote for the park. right. But right. Cleveland Heights voters are pretty well informed. Yes, the debates I, <laughs> that have gone on on next door and elsewhere, I think most people who vote will understand what they're doing.
2: I agree. But I, I think you're right when you're talking about keeping this this area vibrant. This is an inner ring suburb. It's got to compete with places like Pinecrest and Legacy Village. And this would do that right it makes people want to come there so this idea of a park i mean who's against parks right but there is no plan for it they envision this idea as a public square but there's no detail or any mechanism to pay for a park
0: right it's going to create a traffic nightmare for me but i don't care it's not about me this is about what's right for cleveland heights we'll see what people do it's today in ohio Despite pay increases spurred by the pandemic, four of the most common jobs in Northeast Ohio do not pay enough to feed a family of three. Layla, very sad story. What are the jobs? It is
1: a very sad story. Policy Matters, Ohio released this study Friday that says that these four four categories of Cleveland's 10 most common jobs aren't paying enough to feed these families. The categories are retail salespersons fast food and counter workers, cashiers, and home health and personal care aides. In in Cleveland's five-county metro area, these lower-paying occupations account for just over 80,000 employed people. Policy Matters used data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics Occupational Employment and Wage Statistics survey. The report released by the organization shows wage gains from 2000 to 2019, gains during the pandemic, and 2021 pay as a share of poverty. The organization then used poverty thresholds from the Department of of Health, um, pardon me, I'm sorry, and in Human Services, which lists making twenty about twenty two thousand dollars a year as the poverty guideline for a family of three. Policy Matter said that the pandemic and government inter- intervention pushed employers to raise wages, but inflation has really made those increases modest at best. I mean, just awful. No one should work full time and not be able to feed their family. Um, it's it's uh, devastating that we are still grappling with this and uh, always will, it seems.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of inevitable. You raise the pay of people, and people charge more for the products they're selling to pay those wages, and inflation eats away the increases. Interesting study by the think tank. It's today in Ohio. Who's behind the move to put rooftop solar energy in lower-income neighborhoods than where you usually find them in greater Cleveland? Lisa, this story was kind of a reminder that rooftop solar is, has been the purview of people of means, and that's not fair.
3: You're right. And, you know, as we move towards trying to get more renewable energy in Ohio, solar is so important. But the city of Cleveland has uh, collaborated with Solar United Neighbors, and they're calling it the LMI Solar Project. So what this will do is install rooftop solar arrays on up to 10 low to medium income houses. This will cost about $10,000 a piece. But all of this will be covered by grants from the Leon Lowenstein Foundation of Connecticut. So the household income for this project, for these 10 homes, the household income could not exceed $53,000 a year for a family of four. That's 200% of the poverty level. And their roof must be able to support a solar array. Besides giving renewable energy to people who could certainly use it, this project will also collect data as how much costs. You know, how much cost savings there is, how it changes energy consumption, and they will use this data to convince nonprofits to fund more solar installations, you know, either through nonprofits, crowdfunding, or contributions from people who are in market based programs, so people who can afford solar arrays. So the Solar United Neighbors was established. And they've created solar co-ops. There are nine in Cuyahoga County so far. This will be the 10th. They've done 211 solar installations. And so what this is, it's a co-op. The customers who want solar combine to negotiate the best price on their individual installations.
0: Yeah, is, none of you have solar installations on your houses, no. right? No.
3: I'd love to have no. one. If I had money, I would.
0: Yeah, I'm still put off a little bit by the whole meshing with your roof um if you had a brand new roof i guess that would make some sense but if you have a roof you're going to have to replace at some point you have to take the whole thing down and you just start to worry about leaks and they're expensive you're right so it takes a while for them to pay back the technology keeps getting better i think the day will come when we all have them That's it for today in Ohio, for Election Day. Get out and vote. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Come on back tomorrow. We'll have Seth Richardson here to talk about how all of these political races turned out, if we know.